Second uh, Peter's where we're at, so let's go ahead and turn there. We're going to be in chapter two and chapter three uh, today. And um, okay, I'm not necessarily promising this, but my notes basically have me finishing the book today. So let's see how far we get, uh, and uh, we'll, we'll see what the Lord does there. Um, we're going to pick it up where we left off. There towards uh, the middle of uh, chapter 2. So let me kind of set this up because um, we're sort of, we're jumping in right in the middle where we continued from last week. And so I'll do it this way. What's the big political scandal in the news right now? Which one? Somebody says. <laughs> you know, basically it's not polite to talk about religion and politics. I'm combining the two to introduce my message. So Yippee. But, uh, okay, which one? What is, what's, throw it out. What's, what's, huh? Emails. No, not that political scandal. What else? Trump and his wall. No, not that political scandal. What else? Hillary's health, right? That's, okay, so there you go. Her pneumonia, specifically. Now, one of the criticisms, and by the way, this is not partisan. This is an, this is an introduction, all right? But one of the criticisms is that, you know, while she was secretly infected with bacterial pneumonia, which is contagious, she exposed a lot of people for three days. Now, that's the criticism that's being leveled against her. Well, last week in 2 Peter, what we saw is the pathology of false teachers. That's really what we were looking at. Pathology is a medical term, and it's related to the study of the disease process, And uh, the thing about diseases is that they are often infectious. And when they are, the process begins with two things. It begins with a carrier of the disease, in our illustration, a.k.a. Hillary Clinton. And it also includes a host, a.k.a. the nine-year-old girl that she posed for the photo op with. They're saying they, they exposed her. So there's an infectious agent, the carrier of the disease, and there's a host the unwary victim. Now here in 2 Peter, uh, Peter warns us to beware of false teachers because they're infectious. That's what he's talking about. And like all infectious diseases, they follow a path. And this is what we looked at last week, that there's, uh, the, Peter says they have a, these false teachers have a plan, they follow a process, and he says they will be punished. Why? Well, because they're toxic, they're infectious, and, and so continuing now in 2 Peter, we'll pick it up in verse 12. Here's what Peter says. He says, but these, speaking of false teachers, like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of the things that they do not understand. And they will utterly perish in their own corruption." And will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. That word pleasure, it's the, we get the word hedonistic from this. And so he says they're, they're, they, they carouse in hedon, seeking hedonistic pleasure. That word carouse literally means to soften the mind through luxurious living. And this is their M.O. We have in our nation put a high premium on amusement. And muse means to think. You put the prefix A in front of it. It means to not think. And this is what we seek out. We want to not 
think. And so there's lots of things in the world that are available to help us not to think. Well, this is what false teachers want. They want to soften your mind through luxurious living. They don't want you thinking, not about the things of eternity, certainly not the things of God. And so Peter says, look, they're going to receive the wages of unrighteousness because this is their thing. They hedonistic pleasure, carousing in the daytime. There's spots and blemishes carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you. Having eyes, he says, full of adultery that cannot cease from sin. Enticing unstable souls. The reference there is to new believers, those babies in Christ. This is who they go after. They go after, you know, the, the, the weak ones in Christ. He says, they have a heart trained in covetous practices and are accursed children. They've forsaken the right way and they've gone astray following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he, speaking of Balaam, was rebuked for his iniquity. A dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice restrained the madness of the prophet. And we could go off on that and talk at length about that illustration. But basically, uh, Balaam was a guy who was a prophet of God and he liked the money. And the money turned his head and his heart and he was offered a bribe to prophesy against the people of God. And he actually went to God and said, please, can I do this? God's like, no, you can't do that. Right, And so he, he just kept going in that direction, you know, payday, 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 and God intervened and says, no, you're not going to do that. And pretty soon he finds himself arguing with his donkey, his donkey physically actually speaking to him, cartoon character right there. And you know the guy is so far gone, he engaged, the minute the donkey speaks, he, he argues with the donkey, you know. This is the story of Balaam. And so What Peter's saying here is that these prophets, they go that way. They're all about the money. They're all about the, hey, me, myself, and I. And they're going to, you know, go against the things of God. And uh, he says, man, but Balaam was rebuked. Uh, Verse 17, these, false teachers, are wells without water, clouds carried by a tempest. Hey, uh, they promise water. They promise rain. They don't deliver. He says, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever? Verse 18, for when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lusts of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. Again, baby Christians. While they, verse 19, promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption, for by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. Such a perfect picture of sin. Sin offers you life and it delivers death. It offers you freedom and it delivers bondage. Um, and so this is the, the whole picture here. And uh, he says, uh, verse 24, if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome The latter end is worse for them than the beginning. Now, this is controversial. People read this verse and they're like, well, right there, it kind of seems to indicate that Christians can lose their salvation. But there's another camp of people that look at this and go, no, no, when it says they, they're talking about false teachers, that they've escaped you know, the, the pollutants of the, of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and then they're again entangled in these same things and they're overcome then the end is worse than the beginning. So basically, 
And that word knowledge, by the way, that's used there, it's epigenosko, it's supernatural knowledge. It's God revealing himself. And so there's another camp of people, there's one camp that says, hey, this is believers who've fallen away, and that's what it's talking about. Uh, And another camp says, no, believers can't fall away. They can stumble, they can fall, they can fall into sin, but God will bring them back, you know, kind of thing. And so they say, no, what this is, it's a picture of those people that God revealed himself to, but they ultimately reject it. They were never saved to begin with. And you can take either position, and it really, uh, you know, doesn't necessarily damage the message that's being sent here. Um, I'm of the mind that, you know, once saved, always saved. If you're a child of God's, you know, he's, he ain't going to lose you. Uh, and uh, yes, you have the freedom to do what, what you choose to do, and sometimes we fall into sin, but ultimately you know, God's going to be able to correct us and bring us back to where we need to be. And there are those that, you know, debate that, and it is hotly debated, and we ain't got enough time this morning to talk about that whole subject. Um, But uh, at any rate, there you go. So he continues, he says, for it would have been better, this continues this, this line of thinking, for them to have not known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. So now he's going to give a couple of examples of that principle. He says, but it has happened to them, speaking of the false teachers, according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit, vomit, second example, and a sow or a pig having washed to her wallowing in the mire. And so the idea here, and I'll just present it from my way of thinking, I think when you're saved, when you're a child of God, when you're sealed with the Holy Spirit, if you fall into sin, God's able to correct you and to bring you back to where you should be. But I think what Peter is saying here is that these are false teachers who, you know, sort of had the appearance of, hey, they're, they're saved. They certainly had the knowledge. God had revealed himself to them, but they really had, you know, they they went down one path of, oh, this is the righteous way, but pretty soon their true colors came out. And so when he gives these two examples of a dog returning to its vomit and a pig returning to the mud, well, listen, he's talking about the true nature. And he says, look, you, you, know, you can have a dog, and, and what happens is its nature determines its appetite. So, so what happens with the dog is that, you know, Dogs eat cat poop. That's just what they do. It's disgusting. That's what they do. And then there's natural consequences to that. And so they throw the thing up. But because they're a dog, they're going to go back to it and eat it again, the disgusting thing that it is. Why? Because their nature determines their appetite. That's the idea. The whole example of the pig. He's like, his, his, the thing here with a pig is, look, you can put lipstick on a pig, but at the end of the day, it's still a pig. That's what he's saying here. He's saying, look, they're false teachers. They ain't the real deal. And pretty soon their true nature is going to come to the surface. This is what he is talking about here. Now, we surmise this. We go, okay, look, false teachers, they're infectious. They're toxic. And listen, it is ultimately fatal. That's what he's saying. But like all disease processes, what we need to understand is that disease process can be blocked by different defense mechanisms. You can block the disease process by different defense mechanisms. In the natural world, first of all, you can put a barrier to where you're not exposed in the first place. 
Secondly, you have a defense mechanism that if you're exposed, you can take antibiotics or whatever the case may be to fight against that infectious agent. And so it is in the spiritual realm that we can block these, this disease process, these, this false doctrine that, that is, is infectious, toxic, and ultimately fatal. Hey, there's things we can do to defend, to defend against it. And this now is the big idea of chapter 3. So we get to chapter 3 here with the question ringing in our ears, how do we defend against false teachers? That's the question that we have to answer here in chapter 3. And Peter's first point, if you're taking notes, you can write it down. He says, this is how you defend against false teachers. Number one, be mindful. Be mindful. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Peter says, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this, Peter says, they willfully forget that by the word of God in the heavens, uh, uh, I'm sorry, by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water, but the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. So Peter says there in verse 2, hey, look, be mindful. That word mindful, literally, it means to chew on. It means to remember. That's what that word means. Now, what are we to chew on? What are we to remember? Well, Peter tells us the answer. He says, we're to chew on and remember the things that the, that the prophets and the, and the apostles said regarding a specific thing, regarding the promise of Jesus' return and of his coming judgment. So Peter's saying, look, you want to guard against false teaching. You want to guard against false doctrine. You want to guard against the attacks of the enemy to, to get you off <clears throat> into a, a direction that, that, that is going to be harmful, he says, well, how, how about this for starters? Why don't you remember the fact that Jesus is coming back and he's going to judge the living and the dead? Why don't you remember that God, when he comes back, he's setting fire to the whole thing. That's, that's what he's talking about here. See, as far back as the days of Enoch in the Old Testament, God warned that judgment is coming. And you see it throughout the, the Old Testament. You see it in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Joel, Amos, the book of Zephaniah, the book of Zechariah. All of this, all of these contain God's warning that his judgment is coming. And then you get to the New Testament and the warnings continue. Paul discussed it in 1 Thessalonians 5 and in 2 Thessalonians 1 and 2. John discussed it in Revelation chapter 6 through 19. Hey, judgment is coming. Jesus himself discussed it. In John chapter 14, and I'll put it on the screen for you, he's nearing the crucifixion, and Jesus told his disciples this. He said, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. 
I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, here it is, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. Again, in Matthew 24, Jesus warning about the fact that he's coming back and that things are not going to go well, that the earth is going to end, that mankind is going to be judged. And leading up to his return, Jesus said there's going to be war, there's going to be famine, there's going to be pestilence, there's going to be lawlessness that abounds. He says there's going to be false teachers who deceive many. And so again, these warnings are over and over and over again. And here's where Peter is going with this reminder. When Peter says this, look, you know, you need to be mindful to guard against these false teachers. What he's saying is you need to keep the bigger picture in mind in your day-to-day living. And the bigger picture in mind is that we live on the Titanic. And there's false teachers that want to sell you sun, sunblock and, and towels for the pool and everything else. Yeah, yeah, here you go. And we could get caught up in all of that and lose sight of the fact that we've already hit something hard and this, this ship is going down. And so we need to keep that in mind. Now, Peter says here that we need to be mindful and chew on Jesus' words that he's, that he's coming again, knowing, he says there in verse 3, that scoffers will come. Now, what is a scoffer? A scoffer, by definition, is someone who treats lightly that which they ought, which they ought to take seriously. Is someone who treats lightly that which they ought to take seriously. Think of the three little pigs, right? You got the one building his house out of sticks, the other out of straws, and you got the third one building his house out of bricks. And what happens is that the sticks and straws dudes, they're they're like making fun of their brother building his house out of the bricks. They're like, we just want to laugh and play all day. Well, you can't laugh and play all day when there's a wolf that's going to huff and puff and blow your house down. And so, so this, is, this is what's going on here. Now, why, why do these scoffers scoff? Why is Peter saying, hey, the scoffers are going to come? Well, it's the same principle. They just want to laugh and play all day. They want to continue living in their sin. I love this quote. It's been said, if your lifestyle contradicts the word of God, you either have to change your lifestyle or you have to change the word of God. God's word ain't changing, but what scoffers do is they want to make it change. So they preach a false doctrine. They preach something contrary to the Bible. Why? Because they don't want to conform to the Bible. And so, so this is the idea. So because they're covetous, because they're sensual, they scoff at God's word. And I want you to notice the basis of their argument again with me there in verse 4. What do they say? They say, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Hey, you know, yeah, 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 Jesus is coming back. Bible's been warning us, Jesus is coming back. He's going to judge the world. <coughs> we haven't seen it. <coughs> it's been 2,000 years, we haven't seen it. But Peter says in verses 5 through 7 that these scoffers, they willingly forget two very important things. Number one, they forget God's creation. That God, by his spoken word, put this whole thing into being. He separated the waters and the land and he brought, breathed in and created everything. And they willingly forget that. That God created the whole thing in the first place. Second thing he says they willingly forget there. He says that they forget the judgment that was poured out in the days of Noah. 
God came, he saw the sin, and he poured out his judgment. And the idea here is Peter's point is this. They're saying, hey, things have always been the same since our fathers. And Peter is saying, no, they've not always been the same. They have not always continued the way they are now. Peter's point is, look, the earth was different when God first created it and separated the waters from the land. And then it was different again when God flooded the earth and after the flooding of the earth when God brought judgment. And so, therefore, now, in, in response to your argument that everything has been the same, no, it's been different a couple of times. And, listen, it's going to be different once again when God judges the earth with fire. And this is the thing that Peter says that we are be, to be mindful of, that he's judging the earth with fire. Maybe you guys have seen it um, on Facebook or on you know, social media of some platform, there's somebody posts a picture of a house fully engaged, engulfed in fire. And the caption reads, I saw a spider, right? Have you seen that picture? Or how about this? There's a guy, and this is a, this, there's a video. There's a guy who's got a, a hornet's nest in a tree in his front yard. And the dude takes a flamethrower to get rid of the hornet's nest. I kid you not. Honest to Buddha, man. He goes out there. And he's got a, he's got a flamethrower that shoot, and I'm, I'm just telling you, a flamethrower fix everything. And apparently they're legal. I'm like, I want a flamethrower for crying out loud. He goes out there, he's got this tank and this sucker shoots out a, just a ball of flame goes out 20, 30 feet, just incinerates his whole tree to take care of this hornet's nest. And you see one of the neighbors out there just watching, and he's just, and it doesn't help that the guy's got a mohawk. He looks like he'd slit your throat just to look at you. You know, if you, if you had to, if you had to, you know, profile who would have a flamethrower, it's this dude. That guy would have a flamethrower. Sure, I do. Boom! Take care of that that hornet's nest for you. Torches the whole tree to kill the hornet's nest. Just insane. So, so this is Peter's idea. This is what he's saying. He says, look, be mindful. The day is coming and God's coming with a flamethrower to put the earth out of its misery, all right? Now, with that thought kind of hanging there, let me ask you a question. For you as a parent, when it comes to disciplining your kids, do you enjoy it or do you not enjoy it? You don't enjoy I hope you don't enjoy it. You don't enjoy it. I mean, when you say to your kids, look, this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you, it's true. It really does. I heard one comedian, he said, my father came to me, he said, this is going to hurt you more than it's going to hurt me, you know. But, but truly, our heart is, it, it, it's, it hurts me more than it, than it hurts you. And that's the idea of the next two verses here. When Peter says there in verses 8 and 9, it says, but beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years... And a thousand years as, is as one day. The Lord is not slack considering his, concerning his promise to judge the world, to judge the earth, to return and set fire to everything. Hey, he's not slack concerning that promise as some count slackness, but is, here it is, long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That all should come to repentance. Listen, God takes no pleasure in the judgment of the wicked. He says as much in Ezekiel 33. He says, as surely as I live, says the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure 
in the death of wicked people. I only want them to turn from their wicked ways so they can live. That's the heart of God, and that's what Peter says here. He's being long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And, and so Peter says, look, you, you got to understand two things about God. He says, number one, he's not constrained by time like we are. And number two, he's very patient with us because he wants to give us time to repent. Now, 2 Peter 3.8 right here, this verse that, hey, don't forget this. With the Lord, uh, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as a, as, as a day. This is really, truly one of the most misunderstood and debated scriptures in the Bible. And, and there are those, that it, 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 people take all kinds of, you know, build all kinds of prophetic theories <clears throat> on this verse that, you know, gosh, this thousand years being equivalent to a day and so on. Now, when Peter says this, this isn't just some random idea coming out of his head. It's certainly led by the Holy Spirit, and it's based on another section of Scripture, Psalm 90, verse 4, where we read there, For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past, and like a watch in the night. And what you got to understand here is Peter is giving a general principle regarding how we see time versus how God sees time. Okay? And his point is simply this, that God lives outside of time, and time is, is relative to God, okay? He lives outside of time. Um, Charles Spurgeon said this, he says, he, speaking of God, takes for his name the I am. He is the I am. I am in the present, I am in the past, and I am in the future. Just as we say of God that he is everywhere, so we may say of him that he is always. He is everywhere in space and he is everywhere in time. I love that quote. And so God's outside of our time domain and he's patient with us. That's the thing. He has a father's heart. And so... It doesn't mean that judgment isn't coming. It just means that God loves us. And so, yeah, he says, look, the judgment is coming, but I'm putting it off just as long as I possibly can because I want as many people to make a decision to, to repent of their sins and to follow me. And listen, in your life, if today you're here and you know that you are engaged in sin that separates you from fellowship with God, God would speak to your heart today and hear the voice of the Lord when he says to you, I'm giving you time to repent. And I've been long suffering with you. But if you continue in the direction that you're going, I will judge and so right now, this morning, this very moment, this may be your last warning. This might be God saying to you, <clears throat> all right, man, what's it going to be? Because up until this point, I've been really patient with you. That's some sobering thoughts right there, man. Just taking a walk with that. So God's patient with us because he loves us, but it doesn't mean that judgment isn't coming. Notice what he says there in verses 10 through 13. Peter says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt 
with fervent heat, both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. And therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Listen, judgment is coming. Interesting thing about that, by the way, I'll tell you how I read this and how I interpret this. Peter's just made the point and has, has said, listen, with, with the Lord, don't forget this one thing. With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day. Now, without ringing in our ears, he goes on and he says, he talks about the day of the Lord. And it's been debated, what is the day of the Lord? I'll tell you what I think the day of the Lord is. The day of the Lord isn't one particular day. It's about a thousand year span. It's when Jesus returns, calls his church home. Everybody up, everybody out, let's go. And we, the church is raptured and then that ushers in seven years of tribulation. At the end of the tribulation period, then what's going to happen? Ultimately, God is going to judge the wicked and he's going to set up a thousand year reign on the earth. Okay, Now, there's going to be profound uh, uh, destruction in and on the earth. As you go through the book of Revelation, you just see, I mean, just incredible destruction. But God's going to do some renovation, and there's going to be a thousand-year millennial reign on the earth. And then he's going to release the, the captives, the Satan and, and those demons held captive, to do one last temptation. And there are going to be those, astonishingly after a thousand-year millennial reign with Christ there that are going to follow after him, and after that house is cleaned, and after he casts all of them out, then there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, and everything is going to be consumed. The earth, the sun, the moon, the stars, everything is going to be consumed, is going to burn up, and we are then going to be translated, we're going to be living with God in, in the new heavenly kingdom. And so I think that makes profound sense when, when Peter's talking about, don't forget this one thing, with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day. I think the day of the Lord is that thousand year period of time that I've just described to you. I think that's what Peter's talking about. <clears throat> what do we take from that? Well, Peter's second point, be diligent. He continues there in verse 14, he says this, therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent. Our second point, to be found in him or found by him in peace without spot and blameless and consider that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation as also our beloved Paul, according to the wisdom given to him is written to you as also in all his epistles speaking in them of these things in which are some things that are hard to understand which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction as they do also the rest of the scriptures. And so Peter says, listen, 
be diligent to be found by God. And he lists two things that we need to be diligent to be found by God doing or in. He says, first of all, be found by God in peace. And secondly, he says, be found by God without spot or blemish. Blameless, without spot, excuse me, and blameless. Now let's deal with that second one first. When he says, hey, be diligent to be found by God without spot and blameless, he's reiterating the point he's already made back in the first chapter. And if you've been here going through this, you know, what was the point of the first chapter? Look, you're God's kid. You're God's kid. You're a member of, you're of the household of God. You've got great promises in God. And so what do you need to do? Grow up. Mature in your faith. Add things to your faith. Start working out your salvation with fear and trembling. And so this is the being diligent to be found without spot and blameless. Hey, we're out, we're, we are without spot and we're blameless when we are hidden in Jesus Christ. And being hidden in Jesus Christ means we're God's kid. We're sealed with his Holy Spirit. And so it implies all of the things that we've talked about going through chapter 1. Because you're his, grow up. Grow up, mature, honor him, follow him. This is the idea of being found by God without spot and blameless. <clears throat> the idea is, look, dad's coming home. This is in the context of this whole chapter. Look, dad's coming home. Dad's on his way home. You better get busy, okay? You ever have that? Your dad tells you, hey, look, when I come home from work, I want all your chores done. I want this room cleaned. And so you come home from, from school and it's just party, man. You're out with the friends. You're doing everything. You've, you haven't done your homework. You haven't done anything your dad wants. And your mom all of a sudden says, honey, come in, get cleaned up for dinner. Your dad's on his way home. You're like, oh, oh my gosh. What do you do? You get busy, man. Because you don't want dad coming home and finding all the stuff that he warned you that he didn't want. This is the whole idea here. Be found without spot and blameless. Now, the second thing he says that we need to be diligent to do, he says, be diligent to be found by God in peace. Two aspects of this I want to talk about here. The, the, the first side of this, well, Paul said this to the Romans. He said, the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. In other words, there's no peace whatsoever for those who are found being unsubmitted to God. And, and so being Part of being found by God in peace is being found as somebody who is submitted to God's word and submitted to God's will. That's the first aspect of this. But the other side to be being found by God in peace, it also applies, listen, to how we treat others. How we treat others. And this is why Peter says there in verse 15, and consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. Now think about this, with this in mind. You know, there's, there's an account in the Gospels. There's, there's uh, James and John, and they're going into one of the towns of Samaria, and Jesus there is rejected by the people of, the, uh, of this town of Samaria. And James and John are indignant, and they go to God, and they're like, hey, you know, should we call down fire on them and destroy them? How about, how about that, God? How about we, you know, this is some speculate, this is how they were known as the sons of thunder, Right? But they're like, hey, let's, let's, let's nuke them, man. They're going to reject you. 
Listen to Jesus' response. I'll put this on the screen. But he, Jesus, turned and rebuked them, and he said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of, for the Son of Man, here's, here, here's the heart, did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. You see, when, when, when Peter says, Consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation... And when he exhorts us to be found by the Lord in peace, well, man, it means that this needs to be our heart towards those who are outside the faith. So often, people who are unsaved, we as Christians who have been rescued and redeemed, we can, we can, we can be so harsh and judgmental of them, and we forget that we used to be in the same place that they were. It's hard enough for Christians to act like Christians. We can't expect people that don't have the Spirit of God living in them to act like Christians. When they act like they do, it's just their natural way because they're sinners. And so how should we relate to them? Listen, the way we should relate to them is we should pray for them and we should lovingly be reaching out to them and we should be patient with them. Bob Scolton gave his testimony up at the men's retreat and, you know, he's telling a story about a guy that he and I went to go witness to, one of his friends. Bob's got an evangelistic heart. He's always sharing the gospel with his friends. There's many men that, that have the, etern- the hope of eternal life because he shared his faith with them and was faithful to do that and God used it. And so one day he says to me, hey, look, I got a friend. He's, he's in the hospital down in Loma Linda. He doesn't know the Lord. He had a heart attack. He actually, you know, died and they were doing CPR on him and and I, I really love for you to come down there and, and, you know, help me share the gospel with this guy. I go, absolutely, let's do that, Bob. So we go down there. I encounter this guy. He's an Australian dude. He is yoked, man. He's huge. And uh, so Bob's sharing with him his faith. He goes, I brought my pastor with me. We just want to share the good news of the gospel of Christ. This is kind of a paraphrase of how the conversation went down. He goes, let me stop you right there, Bobby. He said, I died and there is no heaven. It was absolute blackness. So if there was a heaven, I would know it because I died. I said, let me correct you. I, I, you know, in addition to being a pastor, I, I was a paramedic for 10 years. So, so, so you need to understand there's clinical death and there's biological death. Okay? Clinical death is when your heart stops and your breathing stops. You are clinically, technically you're dead. But your cells in your body haven't died. And the proof of that is that you're here talking to me right now. You were resuscitated, you started breathing again, your heart started up again. My friend, I don't mean to discount your experience, but I do mean to correct you that you weren't, you never, you weren't dead. <laughs> Biological death is when all your cells die. He looks at Bobby, he goes, who the hell is this that you're going to bring in here to talk to me? He just lost his lid. Just went off. He kicked us out of his hotel, his hospital room. Well, three years later, we find out that he comes to know Jesus. On the drive home, I tell, I tell Bob, I go, look, some of the toughest nuts to crack are the ones that are closest to God. You know, people that are so adamantly opposed to it. And, and what do we got to do with, with people? We just got to be patient with them. We got to love them. We got we to minister to, to them as, as best we can. And so Peter, he says, man, be diligent to, to be found without spot and blameless and, and to be found 
by God in peace. Now, his third last point, and I close on this, is that we need to beware. We need to beware. We need to be mindful, we need to be diligent, and we need to beware. Verse 17, you therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware, lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to him. Be glory both now and forever. Amen. This is Peter's point. He goes, look, told you to be mindful, told you to be diligent. And now, listen, since you know ahead of time that God's coming back to judge the living and the dead, since you know ahead of time that time is short, since I've told you that God has been patient for 2,000 years, we can say that, it's been 2,000 years for us, don't be judged, or don't be fooled into thinking that judgment is never coming. And so beware lest you fall away and grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we close here. Close the book. Made it. Thank you, Jesus. But we close with a sobering reminder that this earth is about to hit something hard. Judgment is coming. You can take it to the bank. And so you need to do business with God this morning. We're going to come to the communion table. The bread represents his body broken for us. The cup, his blood shed on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. And this is the offering of God's only atonement for us and the only hope of mankind. That we can cry out, God, I'm a sinner by nature and choice. And you're a savior. And when I partake of this, I'm saying, God, I I believe that you died on the cross for my sins in my place. And I'm remembering that. And I'm remembering that this is my hope. And this is all of my hope. And here on the first day of the week, I'm going to be reminded of that. Here, concluding chapter, 2 Peter chapter 3, the whole book, we're reminded of the fact, judgment is coming. And I ask you the question, where are you today? How are you going to be found when Jesus returns? Are you going to be found in him?